Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to His Word being preached. Uh, the means that Jesus would use in order to position Himself to save the world was through a Jewish context of rabbinical study. That's clearly not what me and you have to do. But the same principle that if each of us have a purpose, then in order to move towards that purpose, it's going to demand intentional growth. So even if we have the talent for that purpose right now, and even the passion for that purpose right now, we still have to be intentional about growing in the issues around that purpose that are going to help us fulfill it to the best of our ability. Now, um, you know, God can do whatever God can do. So God can fill in the blanks and do amazing supernatural stuff, but I, I, I have to leave the God bit to God. I can't orchestrate that. I can't, but, but I'm only in control of the bit I'm in control of, which is my attitude towards positioning myself and preparing myself for whatever I think God has for me. Uh, and I think that's, that's an important discipleship idea. So sometimes I go to churches and they talk about the fact we have a discipleship program. And I totally get that, totally understand that language. But a New Testament understanding of discipleship, and even an Old Testament one, is it never stops. So I am still a disciple. And the, the strict definition of the word disciple in the New Testament um, is learner, one who learns. So even though I've been studying for my, for my purpose, the Bible, uh, all my adult life, I'm still, I'm still trying to grow so that I can be a better uh, leader and maybe teacher, um, but still learning as a follower. So, so I still have a Bible reading program. Um, even though I've read the Bible cover to cover uh, more times than I can count now and studied the Bible all my adult life, I still woke up this morning and engaged in a very simple Bible reading program because I'm still a follower. I'm not just a leader. And if I want to be a good leader, I've got to be a good follower. And that's really important in the context of discipleship. So, so it has a wider implication. So even if I don't know purpose capital P, you know, what, you know, my big purpose. Actually, as a follower of Jesus, there's enough to know to help me grow. Does that make sense? Which bit does that? So even if I don't know the capital P purpose, so why I've been put on the earth, okay? So even if I don't know that, I know enough from engaging with the Bible and following Jesus, I know enough that actually should help me to grow and follow and disciple, all right? So it's, it's that, yes, Okay, you answered some of the question, but I just wanted to know what's the best way to find out where we're going and what oh, our purpose is? Such a good question, which I don't have the answer to. No, sorry. Um, <laughs> uh, if I had, if I had uh, an English pound, which is worth about 17 rand, if I had an English pound for every time somebody asked that question, I'd have a bit of a ka moment going on in my life. Um, <laughs> So, uh, I remember my 13-year-old daughter at the time, Elena, who's now 24 and a children's pastor, asking me that very question. Dad, how do I discover the will of God? And 
I, I was so used to people asking me that, that I, I grappled with some practical answers. So, of course, the easy answer, the easy answer is, ask God. <laughs> okay, so just ask him, he'll, he'll sort it out. Now, that's the easy answer in one level. It's a really tough answer in another level. Because like my youngest, uh, my oldest daughter at the time, she had asked God and wasn't getting any handle on anything. There were no angels appearing to her and no signs in the sky. So I, I developed four simple questions. It's, you know, it's, they're, they're very, very simple. It's not scientific, but it sort of will push you in the ballpark. So the four questions are this. Um, what gifts do I have? So if you're trying to discover the purpose of God for your life, a good question to start with is, what gifts do I have? Now, the reason I ask that question is because my theology says this. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. That's what Psalm, the psalmist says. And then he goes on to say in that passage that God has a book written for me, days ordained for me. Now, we can read that fatalistically, but that's not what the psalmist means. He means there is a preferred purpose of God for my life. God has a plan which is the best plan for me. So my job is to try and find out what that plan is, to engage with that plan. So, so David says earlier on, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. So here's what I believe, that actually, if God has a plan for me written in a book, which is the best plan, then the gifts that God has put within me in my mother's womb, because it says I'm woven together, I'm embroidered together by God, so genetically, my mom and dad stitched me like this, okay? So I look the way I look because of them. But something supernatural happens in every human conception where the fingers of God put something in us. And if I believe that, and I do believe that, that's my theology, then I believe the gifts resident within me are fundamentally connected to the purpose I'm designed for. So if I believe that, and so you have to accept that idea, then the argument is, what gifts do you have? Now, not what gifts would you like. Okay. Or what gifts do your friends have? What gifts do you have? Now, that's a liberating idea which will help you. So that's the first question. The second question, a little bit harder to answer, but a wee bit intuitive this, is what fills your tank? Now, now, let me explain that. It's a wee bit harder to quantify. What I mean is this. What sort of thing, when you're doing it, fills you up on the inside? So, so there are millions of people, probably in Johannesburg, who are coming home from work tonight in the dark, uh, coming home from work tonight, getting home, and they're not just physically tired. They are empty on the inside because they've been not just physically drained they're doing something that doesn't engage who they are doesn't engage their passions and there are millions of people out of necessity out of survival are doing things they really don't love um, and I don't just mean I don't just mean going to work I mean the type of work you with me it's the type of thing so so work our purpose that engages the heart. I think that's what God's after. So God is not just interested. I was raised in the good old Protestant work ethic, and God is not just interested in us working. God wants us to do purpose. 
There's two different things. So you can work without purpose or you can work in purpose. And when you work in purpose, even though it physically drains you, you're full. So, so when, I, when I get back to my room tonight, I, I, you know, I've had a fairly busy day today engaging with different people. Uh, I will be physically weary, but my heart is full. All right, so what fills your tank? Now, it has to be moral and legal. <laughs> okay. <laughs> just thought I'd specify that, just in case. Um, so what fills your tank? Third question is, what do significant other people in your world see when they look at you? Now, by significant other people, here's, what, here's the type of people I'm talking about. I'm talking about, first of all, people that know how life works. People who are putting this sort of Bible worldview, Bible wisdom into practice. Serious people, not flaky, weird people. Secondly, the type of person you're asking is the person who will tell you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. All right? I didn't really want to hear that, you know. I, I want it to be, you know, a professional footballer. Well, John, you can't play football, lad. That's the problem. Okay, so you know, if you could play football, there might be a chance. But you can't play. So, well, I don't want to hear that. I, I want to play for Liverpool. I want, to, I want to... No, no, you can't because you're rubbish at football. So, so you need someone in your world who will tell you what you need to hear. And, and I believe if you are living close to sort of the, gift, the giftedness you have, even if you're not even aware of it, there will be people in your world that will spot that and see that, and observe that, and, and start to actually call that out. And that's really important. The last question, question number four, is what some people have criticized me. They would say, this has to be the first question. And, uh, but the last question is, what has God said? Now, the reason I leave that question last is not because it's least important, but because it's most troublesome. So, um, two scenarios. Number one, God hasn't said anything. That happens, right? I know, I know it doesn't happen in Shofar. <laughs> but it happens in other churches, let me tell you, where God doesn't say things to people, and so they're stuck. So if you're waiting for the green light from heaven, like the word of the Lord from the angel Gabriel, and it doesn't come, what do you do? Well, you do nothing. You just hang around, wait for God. And, you know, when God shows up, we'll get into gear. Um, and that's dangerous. I think that's not a biblical idea. All right? So I want to try and avoid that idea. I don't want people... Stop. I, I, I don't want people crippled by paralysis because God hasn't spoken. The second thing, can I say this pastorally? So please don't be offended by what I'm about to say. I've met people who claim that God has spoken. <laughs> and my conclusion is, if that's God... You know, we're all in trouble. Do you know, God had a bad day when he, when he turned up and said, because what they're saying God has said doesn't connect to anything at all in their personhood, their journey, their giftedness, or their, their, their growth. It, it's, it's so far out of left field. And actually, um, I'm not saying that God can't do that. I'm saying 
Actually, I, I've seen people taken way off course because they believed they were square-shaped when they were really round-shaped. And because of a word they heard from God, they've gone off on a tangent and hurt themselves. So here's what I believe. If God has spoken, this is my theology, feel free to stick it in the bin if you want. My theology would say this. If God has spoken, then it should connect to the God-given gifts in your life. It should fill your tank when you do it, even if it's a challenge to do it. And significant other people in your world should be able to affirm what you are because it is consistently seen in your behavior. Now, even if God hasn't spoken and you hit the first three questions, here's what it's going to do for you. It's going to position you close to the ballpark. All right, you're going to get close. Even if it's not exactly precise, you're going to be a bit closer than you were before. Why? Because you've practically engaged with a theological idea of gifts and passion and what people observe in you. And that nudges me a wee bit closer to God. And that's helped my own children. My daughter is now a children's pastor because essentially we engaged that conversation and she followed all four questions and it has really helped her. My youngest daughter wanted to be a vet, which is fantastic. She didn't like animals very much, but she wanted to be a vet. (laughs) And so I sat down with her over ice cream. I took her out for ice cream and I said, because she was about to make her big choices for, for exams, you see. So I sat down with her a couple of years ago and I said, now listen, darling, if you want to be a vet, me and your mom, we're going to support you all the way. All right, we will support you. If that's your passion, but, but, before you hit the go button on this, can I tell you what I see? If, and here's what I said to her, she was 13, coming on 13 at the time. Here's what I said to her. If what I think I see doesn't connect to anything you think about yourself, stick it in the bin, be a vet. All right? She said, okay, Dad, go. And so I told her what I saw. Within weeks, she came back to me and said, Dad, don't think I want to be a vet. And I said, well, why did you want to be a vet? Well, the money's good. (laughs) Well, at least she was honest. Okay, the money's good. Um, But actually, she's now on a trajectory. Now, I think the call of God's on her life, but I can't can't manipulate that. I won't manipulate that. But she's on a trajectory, which puts her in the ballpark of what I think is the call of God on her life. Only God can sort that call out. But she's moving in the broad direction of those, and she's happier and she's more fulfilled, and she's really engaged in the local church. Does that make sense? So outside of the nudge. Sir. Can I add a quick something to, to what you're saying? In, you're, you're the pastor. You can do anything <laughs> you want. In, in Proverbs 16, verse 9, it says, The heart of man plans his way, mm. but the Lord establishes his steps. Um, and and we, so often when we look for God's guidance, we, we look for God to tell us something. But I think that this scripture says to us that God's guidance is not just something he tells us, but something he does to us. Yes. He establishes our steps. And while we're executing the plans of our hearts, God is doing something to us. He's guiding us. Absolutely. Uh, while we're doing what we think is, you know, uh, best in terms of following his will. Yes. So just that idea that, that God's guidance is not just something he says to you, but something he does to you. 
um, also helps us not to be passive and wait for God to say something, but to say, okay, I've, I'm going to make the plans of my heart, but I'm going to trust God that while I'm executing those plans, he's going to establish my steps. Very good. Very good. Yeah. And, and I would say, back to the comment, I, I'd say even if you don't know the, the big P purpose, I, I would encourage every follower of Jesus, there's enough in the text to move us into doing the right sorts of things that will position us for God to do his thing. God, only God can do God's thing. We can't manipulate that. But, but we can position ourselves by doing the sort of stuff already revealed to us in the text that, that the Lord likes. So certain things I don't need to pray about in the Bible. I, just don't, don't, I don't need to pray about certain things because it's, it's a stated desire of God. So, as a follower of Jesus, I just need to do those things and then let God work out the details as we go along. So, so don't get so obsessed, uh, obsessed with the capital P purpose that you don't move. My encouragement to you is serve. We've done it with all our children. Serve. Give yourself to just serving. Give yourself to giving. Give yourself to helping people. Give yourself to giving to the poor. Give yourself to mission. And then let God show up and do what God does. Move in the right direction. Is that okay? Okay. All right. Okay. Well, let me, let me, um, so what we'll try and do, I'll try and give you some practical guidance on, on growing. Is that okay? Uh, on a couple of things that I've learned. Let me, let me read you something from, from Proverbs. Proverbs chapter four. Uh, let me just catch up here, see where we are. Great. Proverbs chapter four. Can I just read you a couple of verses from this? Verse one, Proverbs four. Listen, my sons, to a father's instruction. Pay attention and gain understanding. I give you sound learning, so do not forsake my teaching. When I was a boy in my father's house, still tender, and an only child of my mother, he taught me and said, Lay hold of my words with all of your heart. Keep my commands and you will live. Get wisdom. Get understanding. Do not forget the words, uh, my words or swerve from them. Don't forsake wisdom. And she, beautiful language, will protect you. Love her and she will watch over you. Wisdom is supreme. Therefore, get wisdom. Though it cost you all you have, get understanding. Esteem her and she will exalt you. Embrace her and she will honor you. She will set a garland of grace on your head and present you with a crown of splendor. Listen, my son, accept what I say and the years of your life will be many. Now, that sort of passage would have been very familiar to Jesus. So it's a context of learning set in the context of community and family. So this idea that learning was, was done separate from the community is a very non-Jewish thought process as far as the world of Jesus would have been concerned. So we've got this idea that learning, growing, uh, deliberately attending to wisdom was a normal part of uh, community. And I want to sort of show you some things from the, from the word smart, broken down as an acrostic, just five little pieces of advice in terms of growing on purpose and growing deliberately, um, especially in the area of wisdom, but this will apply to any area at all, and I hope it, hope it helps you. First of all, seek out smart people. Seek out smart. That's a smart thing to do. Now, by smart, we don't mean game show smart. Okay, who wants to be a millionaire 
who are you going to phone? You know, so it's, it's not game show smart, it's life smart. So learning in the Bible is never for the sake of knowledge, it's always for the sake of growth. So the accumulation of knowledge is not the goal. It's learning so we can grow. In fact, I would argue that in a Bible worldview, we can't really grow without learning. Learning is a key. And that's not just head learning and intellectual learning. It's a learning that actually finds its way into the everyday of our lives. So it's that learning. So by smart, I don't just mean game show smart. I'm talking life smart. And actually, um, some of my greatest learning moments have been because I have deliberately, intentionally connected myself to smart people. And I've gone to people who I look at and think, he or she could teach me about this. And I've gone to them and said, can you help me with this? Can you teach me how to do it? I mean, I remember moving from PC to Mac and I moved over and, you know, I had a number of friends, so you've got to do this. You know, once you Mac, you never go back. <laughs> so cheesy. Uh, and so, and so I, I moved eventually across to Mac, eye-wateringly expensive, um, but worth the journey, I think. And when I moved across, easy, uh, when I moved across, I had a friend that I regard as a Mac master. Okay? And so... I got my new Mac and I phoned him and I said, I've got my new Mac. Can you help me? And you know, I probably learned more stuff from him in one hour on that Mac than I would have learned out if I just opened it up, pressed the button and tried to make my own way. Now, I'm just like that. If I get stuck, I ask. If I get lost, I stop the car and say to someone, do you know the way? If I don't know something, I ask. And actually... That's one, of, that's one of the signs of, of great smartness, is that we know what we know, but we know what we don't know, and the stuff we don't know, we find people who know what we don't know. Sorry. Uh, we could keep, it's going around a circle, isn't it? So we could keep doing this. So we find people that are smart in the areas we want to grow in, and we get with them. Now, Jesus would have done that. Jesus would have sat with serious scholars who helped him know stuff. Now, eventually, undoubtedly, he outgrew those scholars, but he started under them. Yeah? And, and one of the things I find about the Christian church, which I find slightly disturbing, is that Christians get a little bit of knowledge, and then they think they can rock the planet, and they don't need to engage anymore in the learning processes because they've read a wee book or they've learned something. Do you know what? I, I, we were talking together, me and Pastor Henny, and I, I, I've studied the Bible all my adult life, and I feel like I'm still at the bottom of the mountain that I've been climbing for forever. And every time I open the Bible, you're seeing stuff. How did I miss that? And then I listen to, to great teachers or great educators, and I'm just profoundly challenged at the stuff I'm not seeing not just for the stuff I, I am. Uh, you know, when, when Solomon speaks to his son, he says, uh, listen to a father's instruction. And the context there is, uh, we're not being sexist there. It's just he's using his own contextual experience with his sons, which would have been a very Jewish thing to do. And he's 
placing learning in the context of smart relationships, not just smart information. And, and I, I love the idea that we can, we can learn by going to Google. Google is God. And so we can learn by going to Google. But you know, there's stuff you learn by rubbing up against really smart people, people who know how prayer works, people who know how the Holy Spirit moves, people who know the heart of heaven, people who have the touch of God about them, people who know how to make the everyday work. Yeah? So it's, it's, that, it's that sense. I remember in our church, we ran a, a seminar, uh, and we, we worked in a fairly deprived area. So we run a series of seminars absolutely free on money management because it was a persistent problem in our world. So we were getting lots of families in debt. In fact, 60% of our church lived under the poverty, the national government poverty line at that time. So we wanted to help people, not just to get more money from them. We genuinely wanted them to get more money. So, so we put on these fantastic seminars, brought in a wonderful spirit-filled Christian who happened to be also a superb financial advisor and manager, gave us three days free. Now, he could charge a £1,000 a day to do a basic seminar, and he was giving us three days for free, right? First seminar, I look around the room, everybody on the front row with their notepads, they're all good with money. <laughs> I look around at the gaps in the congregation and all the people who are rubbish at money are not there. What is that? I'll tell you what that is. That's stupid. That's what that is. See, that's stupid. That's the opposite of smart. It's really stupid. And what stops us getting smart? Pride. I don't need to go to that seminar. Well, why are you broke then? Come on. And, and actually, it's, it's, we've got to swallow our pride and get with smart people. And if you're not good with money, get with people who are good with money and say, can you teach me how to do that? Don't ask them for money. Teach them how to use money. <laughs> yep. You want to learn how to grow in the Bible? Get with people who are good with that. You know, push them because pe smart people will make us smarter. And it's one of the smartest things you can do is get around smart people. Yeah, that's a wise thing. That's a biblical idea that we need to do. Secondly, make time to learn. I commend you for coming tonight because you've made time. You could be doing anything tonight and you have turned up to this event in order to learn something. And hopefully, 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 you will learn something. But here's what I absolutely do know. If we don't intentionally make time to learn and grow, then generally we don't. Now, there are exceptions. There's always an exception to a rule, and someone will come to me afterwards and give me a hard time on that. But actually, the general rule of thumb is if I'm not making time for something, it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. Get squeezed out by a million things. So, so as a follower, let me just challenge you with this. A follower of Jesus, right? I meet many wonderful followers of Jesus who claim that the Bible is the book of books. And yet, from one Sunday to the next, we never pick it up. 
Now, I'm not saying that's you. It's probably not you, because like shofar rocks, right? So it's probably not you. It's somebody else. But it happens a lot, right? Now, now, as a follower of Jesus, that's the most basic form of growing. Exposing yourself regularly, consistently, to the light and power of the Word of God. Right? And, and here's the thing. If I don't make time for the Bible, I've got a million other things in my life that I'll do. I can just fill my life. I'm an activist by nature. I just fill my life with anything. And so I literally have to intentionally set time aside every day, not to study the Bible, just to read it. Yeah? So I I used to lecture in Bible college, and I would lecture Luke Acts to first years, and I always asked this question to every first year class, just a little spot test said, okay, my goodness, you're all at Bible college, you're excited. Question, how many Christians here have read the Bible from cover to cover? So at some point in your life, you've read every one of the 66 books, right? My last class had 39 students. Nine out of the 39 had read all 66 books, right? Now, I'm not trying to get religious and heavy here. I can see you looking at me. Stop it. Okay, so I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to do that. I'm just making a very simple point. These are people that have given up jobs, given up certain career directions in order to come and do like a full-time Bible college course, three years full on, all right? But they've arrived at Bible college, and most of them hadn't just read the text, when I then said, okay, how many people have read the New Testament bit of the Bible? Thinking, you know, that'll, the numbers will go up a wee bit, right? Okay, that's, that's make me feel better. Um, not including the nine who had read the whole Bible, another 12 had read the New Testament part of the Bible. So a class of 39 meant this, that before I could start on the Gospel of Luke, I had essentially a whole chunk of the class that would have no idea what I'm talking about just to begin with. Why? Because we haven't even engaged with the text. Now, John, what's the point? Well, the point is this. You know, actually, if you're struggling, if you're struggling to learn and grow, the first step is make time for the text. Make time for the book. But it's hard. Well, of course it's hard. It's an ancient book. But it's worth it. Engage with it. Make time to learn. Look at what uh, Solomon says. He says, get wisdom. Get understanding. In fact, in verses 5 to 7, four times he says, get, get, get. Make it a priority in your world. Put it on top of your list. Thirdly, apply learning to your life. So this is the idea, this is a Bible worldview when it comes to learning. Learning is simply not about knowledge. It's always about application into our lives. It's not simply about knowing stuff, but letting that stuff change the way we think and apply into our world. I believe this, that nothing is taught until something is learned, and nothing from a Bible worldview is truly learned until it finds application in the way we live. 
okay? Now, I know there are some lofty theological concepts, but, but every, everything we learn about God should have an impact on the way we live our lives, right? So, I, I don't believe we can truly do theology properly and not change. Now, we can do, you know, academic study and not change, but truly do theology and not change. Yep. So, so it's that, that idea of I'm not just learning to know, I'm learning to grow. Not just learning to know, I'm learning to grow so that my life can move forward. Okay? Then resource yourself. We live, um, and you and I, probably in, in South Africa and me in Britain, we live um, with access to resource that is quite staggering. Even free resource that's out there is breathtaking. The internet, lots of Christians don't like the internet, and I understand why they don't like it, but just because there's some nasty stuff around doesn't mean we should kick the rest out. Just the access of phenomenal Christian resource, even that's free on the internet, is phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. And when we do our Bible-equipped programs, Christians are profoundly amazed at what's out there without spending a penny, as long as, you, you know, you're paying for your internet access, of course. But it's incredible, the resource that's there. And actually, you can't really grow without cost. Growing is expensive. And we accept that for doctors and nurses and bankers and people. That, but, but we somehow think, well, for a Christian, it's different. I can grow without expense. But here, here's what I've discovered. Every, every decision to grow has cost me something. It's cost me time, energy. Sometimes, literally, it has cost me money. And it's, cost, it's meant I've had to sacrifice something else to get this. I can't have everything I want, so I've got to let some stuff go. And, but, but resourcing yourself is absolutely worth it. And the sign that you're a smart person is that you are exposing yourself to good resource in your world, whether for you personally or the network you're in, you're exposing yourself to that and you're learning and you're growing. I love this. Uh, this is the message version. It says, above all and before all, do this, get wisdom, write it on the top of your to-do list. Love that idea. But the pursuit of growth is expensive. You can't grow on the cheap. That's why many Christians don't do it. Because it's expensive. So what they prefer to do is just receive from other people's growth. Right? And that's okay. But actually, if you and I want to be serious about growing, it's going to be expensive. Last we thought, and then I'll draw this to a close with any other questions we can ask it. Take your opportunities. I love, let me read this to you right at the end. It's an absolutely beautiful picture. Um, and he says this, um, verse 7, wisdom is supreme, therefore. So in other words, he's saying, if you accept wisdom is supreme, there's only one 
consequence, isn't there? There's only one thing to do next. He says, wisdom is supreme, therefore get wisdom. Though she cost you all you have, get understanding. Esteem her, she will exalt you. Embrace her and she will honor you. She will set a garland of grace on your head and present you with a crown of splendor. Now, let me just say something that might be slightly disturbing as a finishing thought, but I'll give it to you anyway. In the book of Proverbs, there is a profound contrast between wisdom and folly. Wisdom is presented as a deeply attractive, gorgeous, virtuous woman. So, now remember, Solomon's speaking to his sons. So, this, this, this analogy makes sense in this context. So, he's saying to his sons, wisdom is this stunning, virtuous woman that any man would be a fool to ignore. Folly, he describes as a prostitute, a harlot. The old King James will put it in stronger language. So, so, so you have this contrast literally from one chapter to the next. Wisdom, this virtuous, gorgeous woman, and folly, this prostitute who will take the young man and literally drain him of his strength and then spit him out and leave him with nothing. So he'll get a few moments of ecstasy and then be left absolutely bankrupt in every single way. Now, Solomon deliberately uses those very strong pictures for his sons. He's trying to give a metaphor which says, avoid the prostitute. The quick thrill doesn't last. And she'll leave you with nothing. Rather, now forgive the language, rather, he says, open up your home, open up your world, and embrace wisdom. Don't have a fling with wisdom. Marry her. Engage with her. Forgive the language, have intercourse with her. Not with the view to then moving on, but with the view to setting up home with her. So that's this idea of embrace her, esteem her, put her at the center, make her your queen. And actually, if you're prepared to be that zealous around positioning yourself with wisdom, then she, wisdom, will exalt you. She will make you look good. She will position you for success. But you don't get the payoff from her with a fling. If you want the payoff from wisdom, you got to move in. Marry the woman. Engage with the woman. Actually give yourself relentlessly and fully to her. If it's just sex you want, he says to his sons, then go to folly. Because that's all folly is. It's just quick fix sex that never goes anywhere but wisdom. Later on in chapter 9, he says, wisdom has built her house. Uh, and, and he talks about these nine pillars, uh, incredible pillars of wisdom. So, so actually, he's, he's using this analogy to say to his sons, take the opportunities. Don't treat wisdom as a passing fling, but give yourself to her. 
fully and totally. And actually, I've discovered, you know, again, without, without pushing this analogy too far, uh, I, I've been married 29 years, and I, I absolutely adored and loved my wife when I married her, right? You know, I absolutely couldn't wait to marry her, couldn't wait to be with her. Best decision I've ever made, apart from following Jesus, genuinely. You know, I'm married up. She's an amazing woman, incredible person, has enriched me in every way, but it's, it's living with her, walking with her, that has truly enriched me. It wasn't just marrying her and having intercourse. It has been the learning to live with her that has enriched me. That's what wisdom does. It's not a quick fix. It's not a shortcut. It doesn't happen in five minutes. It's not a buzz or a high. It is a moving in together and making a decision we will build a life together with wisdom. And, and I believe that that's at the very heart of the Christian journey. That we're not looking for the quick fixes, but we're locking down for a journey of, of longevity with wisdom. But if you make a decision to grow every day, if you make a decision to open up your arms to wisdom every day, if you make a decision to open up your heart to this magnificent God-breathed text every day, if you expose yourself to this fantastic Christian community on a regular basis and rub heart and shoulder with truly smart people, then you will grow. And she will make every one of us look better than we actually are. And actually, that's, that's my ambition. Every day, one step. Just one step of growth. Every day, just take a step. Every day, keep taking the step. And if you take one step of growth every day, in a year, you'll have walked a long way. And that's, I believe, at the heart of true discipleship. So Jesus disappears at the age of 12 over the horizon and Dr. Luke, the only thing he tells us that happens in the next 18 years, we know there's more, but the only thing he tells us is Jesus deliberately and intentionally grew so that at 30, he was ready to take his place. If Jesus had to grow, we need to grow. If Jesus learned to grow, we can learn to grow. And if we make the decision that we will grow every day, and actually, we will grow. And God's glory will be seen, not just in the Instagram moments, but in the ordinary, routine moments of everyday life. Thanks for listening to this message from Shafa Johannesburg. May the grace you received produce God's greatest glory and your greatest good. For more information and sermons, please visit our website at www.shofar.com. Dot Jarbo. You're the one who gave you